We're up to chapter 3, Mishnah 23. This is the final Mishnah of chapter 3. A short, really interesting one. Rabbi Elazar Chisma, Omer. Rabbi Elazar Chisma says, Kinim upischenida, the laws of bird offerings, and the returning to the beginnings of the menstrual cycle, hein hein gufe alacha. It is these that are the essential laws. Tkufos, astronomy. Vidyamatrios and mathematics. Parparos lachachma. That's the dessert of the wisdom. This is a very unusual teaching. It lists four different things. Uh, kinim, laws of bird offerings. Pischinida, the laws related to, to the nida. Astronomy, which is related to, of course, managing a calendar, understanding the, the equinoxes and the light. And uh, gematrios, gematrios it means here uh, mathematics, but typically it's used to describe the idea of assigning numerical values to letters and thus to words and trying to find hints to connections between words or phrases. Frequently in the Torah, the Torah says this, but if you count the letters, it's, it's this number which equals that, which is a way of hinting some sort of, uh, of, of deeper message. So those are, are the desserts, whereas the first two are the actual the body, the essential law. Okay, so let's start by trying to do a little bit of a uh, of a backstory of this Rabbi Elazar. His name is Rabbi Elazar, and his nickname was Chisma. So if you notice in in our book, it says Rabbi Elazar Ben Chisma, which means the son of Chisma. But the word Ben is in parentheses because he really wasn't the son of Chisma. Normally, you have Rabbi Yochanan Ben Zakkai. His father's name is Zakkai, and he's Rabbi, his name is Yochanan. Rabbi Yochanan, he's Rabbi Yochanan Ben Zakkai, the son of Zakkai. Here, it is Rabbi Elazar, but Chisma is actually a nickname, not the name of his father. Now, the word Chisma, and there's two different meanings as to what it is. Either it means the strong one, or it means the one who was muzzled. How did he get this interesting nickname? So the Midrash tells us, that there was a story that happened to him. He came to a shul, to a synagogue, and they asked him to go lead the services. And he was not capable of doing that because he, was, he wasn't trained properly. So they see this scholar, or someone who maybe looked like a scholar, and they start making fun of him. You're the one who doesn't know anything. Look at you. What a, what a poor excuse of a human being. You don't even know how to leave the services. So he was really embarrassed and he went back to his teacher, who was Rabbi Akiva. And he was taught properly how to leave the services and he became a great scholar, a more well-rounded scholar. And finally, he returned to that particular location and to that shul. And this time he was able to leave the services. And they said to him, Oh, this Rabbi Elazar, he was strengthened. Meaning that the word chisma means strengthened, a strong one. He was someone who had the resolve, despite the fact that he was ashamed at an earlier juncture of his life, he had the resolve, the tenacity, the wherewithal to rebuild himself and to go study and to, to go put in the hard work to achieve whatever he achieved. And therefore, he is nicknamed the strong one. Alternatively, the word chisma may mean he was muzzled, and that may refer to the early part of the story, when, when he got up there and he didn't know how to lead the services, he was muzzled. He didn't know how to open his mouth properly, and therefore it's like he was muzzled. 
But an interesting uh, little anecdote that we find about Rabbi Lazar Chisma that he had this change at, at an earlier point in his life. He was not as developed in 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 Jewish life in. Uh, at least in this point, in this portion of, of Jewish life, which is leading the services, he went to his teacher, was Rabbi Tiva. Again, another little uh, marker, biographical marker. His teacher was Rabbi Tiva. We'll see he has other teachers as well. But we could now peg him to a certain time frame, time period in history. And he uh, became greater, became a greater scholar, and that may be the origin of his nickname. Now, we do find he was also a student of Rabbi Hoshua. So it seems like he's at that cutoff point between the generation of Rabbi Yoshua and the generation of Rabbi Tiva, because Rabbi Tiva himself was a student of Rabbi Yoshua. So if he goes to study by Rabbi, by Rabbi Tiva and he's a, study, he's a student of Rabbi Yoshua, so he's overlapping those two generations of, of sages. Now we also know that he was a member of the academy of Rabbi Gamliel. Rabbi Gamliel, of course, we've spoken about many times. He was the Nasi, the president of the Jewish people, and the head of the academy in the city of Yavne. Yavne was a city that the sages moved to after temples destroyed. So we know exactly when in history he lived. He lived after, or his 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 time. He may have lived, of course, before the temples destroyed, but the time frame roughly is sometime after the temples destroyed. That's where he's a student of Rabbi Rabbi Gamliel in the Academy of Yavne, together with Rabbi Yeshua and together with Rabbi Akiva. The Talmud, the book of Chadiga, page three a, tells us an episode of him visiting. Rabbi Yoshua on the festival. He went together with another sage. They went to visit Rabbi Yoshua in, in Pekin, which is the name of the town in which Rabbi Yoshua lived. And we know that the, this was a common practice. In fact, even today, we still do it. The tradition is to visit your, your sages, to visit your mentors on the festival. So there's a festival. You go visit your sage. So it was a festival, and they went to visit Rabbi Yoshua in the city of Pekin. So what happens in this meeting? So we have the, the, the minutes, the dialogue that happened between these sages, the two students going to visit Rabbi Yehoshua, the venerated, uh, mentor of, of their, the pre, the sage, the elder sage. So he asks them the following question. He says, okay, what did you boys recently study in the academy? What's the new insight that you learned in the academy? And of course the students, they don't want to say anything. Just like, they tell him, they say, listen, we're your students. You're our teacher. You're supposed to teach us, not vice versa. So don't ask us what they taught in the academy. You should be dispensing teachings. You shouldn't be asking us to teach you. So they're trying to wiggle out of this responsibility, apparently, of, of sharing what they studied from, from their teachers in the academy or in the academy. And he says to them, still, even though I am normally in the role of the teacher, you're the student, still, the famous line that he says, there is no base medrash below chiddush. There's no study session without some new insight. So there is a new insight, and there's a new insight that I don't know. I want you to share with me the new insight that I don't know. So he begins to ask them uh, the question, okay, who was the one giving the lecture this week? Now, the fact that he has to ask that question we're able to know exactly when this was in history. Because if you remember, Rabbi Gamliel, he was the Nasi, but he was deposed. Ironically, he was deposed because of the scuffle that he had with Rabbi Yoshua. And then Rabbi Elizabeth Nazaria was 
was nominated to replace him as the Nasi. But then Rabbi Gamaliel was reinstated, and then they had they would alternate. Some weeks it was Rabbi Gamaliel who would give the lecture, and some weeks it was Rabbi Zephanazariah who would give the lecture. So therefore he says, okay, who was the one giving the lecture this past Shabbos in the academy? And he said to him, okay, it was Rabbi Lazar ben Azariah's week. It was his Shabbos. It was his week. It was his turn to give the lecture. And what was he talking about? He was talking about the section of the Torah that talks about Hakel. Hakel is the mitzvah of the Torah that every seven years in the Shemitah, at the end of the Shemitah year, everyone everyone gets together to go hear, hear the Torah. Everyone comes together. And the verse says in Deuteronomy chapter 31, you should gather the nation, the men, the women, and the children. Everyone comes to hear the Torah being read together. And the lecture of Rabbi Lazar ben Azariah, he would, he explained this. What does it mean? The men come to study. The women come to hear, to absorb the lessons. But why do you bring the children? Even young children, they don't understand. Why do you bring them? Why is Moses telling us, and why is Moses and the Torah telling us to bring the children as well? That was the question that he posed. And they responded, yeah, must be, it was not necessarily for the benefit of the children. It was to give reward for those who brought the children. That's why the children are brought. It's not for the children's sake, for their parents. The parents should have the merit of bringing their children to hear this hakel. That was the message that they, that, that was the insight that Rabbi Elizabeth Azaria conveyed. So they shared this with, with Rabbi Yeshua who wasn't there. And he responded, you have this amazing pearl, this gem in your hands and you wanted to withhold it from me? I asked you to tell me to share with me an insight and you said, no, we're going to hear from you. You have this amazing gem, this wonderful pearl. And how could you even think of withholding this from me? This amazing insight that the children are brought to give reward for those who bring them. That's, that's where the Talmud ends. And it goes, it actually goes on to say that there were other teachings that, that, that they shared. But see, I think it's, it's a very interesting uh, Talmud because, you know, to us, we hear this teaching like, it sounds nice. Okay. The men come to study and the, the, the women come to hear and the children come to give reward to those who bring them. It seems like it's a pretty humdrum kind of teaching. But he was so blown away by this insight, he was so impressed by it, and thus we don't really see exactly what the what 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 is this great gem that Rabbi Yeshua is talking about. We don't seem to see it. It's hard for us to tell. But it is maybe not a coincidence that we know about Rabbi Yeshua himself all the way back in chapter two of Perkyavos. Rabbi Yeshua himself was one of the five students of Rabbi Yochanan Zakkai. And if you all remember, Rabbi Yochanan Zakkai had five students, and each one of them, he was able to classify what kind of particular amazing attribute that they had. And then he sent them on missions. Go find what the best thing is to have in life. Go find what the worst thing to have in life is. And they would go, go out and try to discover the mission, come back and share the results. But when it talks about Rabbi Yeshua, it says about him, what is his outstanding quality? His outstanding quality is praiseworthy are the people who bore him, his parents. His parents are praiseworthy. And the commentaries explain, because when Rabbi Yeshua was a small baby, before he understood anything, his parents would push his carriage, his stroller, into the academy to go hear the, the Talmudic teachings. So it's probably not a coincidence 
that he is so taken by this teaching when he himself, as a small baby, and in fact, even later on in life when he's an adult, and Rabbi Yochanan Zakai is saying, what is special about you? He's pointing to the fact that when he was a small child, a, a baby, a, 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 an infant, he was also brought in to hear the the, in the, in the, to hear, to hear the teachings of the Torah and the Academy. It's probably not a twisted. What is actually the connection is, is maybe a, a separate question. But an interesting story we see, and again, tries to, it gives more light, it gives more color to the, to the sages of the era and the interactions that they had. We see these two sages going to visit the, the elder sage, Rabbi Yeshua, and sharing Torah and the discussion, the dialogue, and the little biographical notes that we pick up. There's another teaching in the Talmud. Uh, this time it's a dialogue between Rabbi Gamliel, the Nasi, the head of the academy, and Rabbi Yeshua, the aforementioned Rabbi Yeshua, and this time they're on a ship. There's a few places in the Talmud that talks about the sages on a ship. And they're traveling. Obviously, they're traveling throughout the Mediterranean. Because they're stationed in Israel, various places in Israel, the north and the coastal areas, and they're traveling on the ship, and it could be to all places on the Mediterranean basin, but most likely with Rabbi Gamliel, he's the Nasi, so he's the political leader of the Jewish people. He's probably traveling to Rome on a mission, a diplomatic mission, for for his people. Now, we do also know that there are many times Rabbi Shua himself was traveling to Rome as well because he was also a representative. He was also a diplomat representing the Jews. And of course, it's important to stress, after the temple's destroyed, there are no longer politicians and diplomats that are just politicians, just diplomats. They're all sages. That after the temple's destroyed, the nation realizes that the most talented, the most capable people that we have are not the people that were groomed for politics or groomed for diplomacy, but rather they're groomed for Talmud, groomed for studying of Torah, and actually they're the ones who are most capable of selling our our nation's case to the Romans. They're the most able to be the politicians, to be the 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 leaders also in other realms beyond the religious and the spiritual. But anyhow, the Talmud tells us that Rabbi Gomliel and Rabbi Yeshua are on a ship. This is from the Talmud in Horeas, page 10a. And of course, when they go on a ship, you have to bring provisions. It's like today you have, you want to go on a cruise. So there's no kosher food on the cruise. So they have kosher cruises, which they have kosher, kosher food in a, in a bigger ship. But this sounds like it's, uh, I don't know if they had to bring their own food because it wasn't kosher because they had to bring their food because you have to, when you go on a, uh, on a trip, you have to bring your own food. But regardless, they each brought their food. Rabbi Gamliel brought bread. Rabbi Yeshua brought bread and flour. Of course, you bring flour as well. It's able to last you longer. Now, bread maybe lasts a week before it spoils. Flour lasts a lot longer. So that way he, he was thinking, Ahead, maybe we'll run out of the bread and we'll still be in the ship, so we'll have to make bread out of the flour. So he brought the flour as well. And indeed what happened, Rabbi Gamaliel's bread was used up, was finished. And he went to Rabbi Shu and says, can I borrow some of your flour to make the bread so that way I could have some food? And of course, Rabbi Shu was shared with Rabbi Gamaliel. Now, the obvious question is, why did Rabbi Gamliel not bring enough provisions? Doesn't he know how long the trip takes? Why is Rabbi Shu bringing enough food, bringing bread, bringing flour, and Rabbi Gamliel is not, and he has to rely on his colleague, Rabbi Yoshua, to give some of his flour, give, give some of his bread to him. 
So he asked them the following question. He says, how did you know that the ship will be delayed? How did you know that you brought flour? So he responded, there is a star that appears in the sky every 70 years. I don't know if this is Halley's Comet. I'm not an astronomer, but maybe. And when it appears in the sky, it confuses the sailors. And I said before embarking on this trip, maybe it's the time for that star to appear. And maybe it's going to confuse the sailors, and therefore it's going to take them longer to get to our destination. And therefore, I'm going to bring the extra food just in case. So, of course, Rogamliel is very impressed with this uh, advanced knowledge of astronomy of, of Rabbi Yoshua. And he tells him, he says, you have so much wisdom, so much knowledge, yet you're traveling on the ship here to go grind out a very difficult living. And as we know, these two people, both great titanic sages, but very much at the opposite ends of the income and wealth spectrum. Rabbi Gamliel is one of the first, the first family of the Jewish people, the Senate of Hillel, the Nasi, super wealthy, super connected. And Rabbi Shua was very poor. And in fact, there is another story in the Talmud where Rabbi Gamliel goes to visit Rabbi Yeshua because, again, he offended him and that's why he was deposed. So he went to ask forgiveness and he sees his hut and it was so black because he was a, a blacksmith and it was so darkened with soot and he couldn't imagine that someone such a great scholar is living in such deplorable conditions. So it's another story about the, the income disparity between these two sages. But he's asking him the following question. He's like, I, I don't get it. You're so brilliant. You're so knowledgeable in so many different areas. Like this is not Torah. This is astronomy. You know, why can't you use your, your talents, your abilities? How can we still have to make this, uh, pittance of a living out of, uh, traveling the ship and going to dangerous places, etc.? So instead of answering the question, he deflects it. He says, why are you asking a question about me? You have two students in your academy, and he names them. One of them, Rabbi Lazar Chesma, the author of our Mishnah, and one of them, Rabbi Yochanan ben Gud, different, different of the sages. These people are such advanced scholars that they're able to estimate how many drops of water there are in the ocean. Could you imagine taking the, the, the Mediterranean Sea and trying to estimate how many drops of water? Such advanced calculations and mathematics that they're capable of Yet, they are totally destitute. They don't even have any bread to eat. They don't have any clothing to wear. That was his response. Don't worry about me. Worry about your own students. They're so advanced and so capable and so brilliant and so wise in in all these uh, incredible fields and mathematics and, and the like and physics. And yet, they're so destitute. So Rogamil says, okay, I'm going to take this lesson to heart, to, 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 to heart. I'm going to, he made a mental note of this, that when he gets back to the academy, he's going to promote these two sages. And when they get a promotion, it's likely that they'll, it'll open up, it'll avail for them more opportunities, more opportunities to make more money. So he made that note. And indeed, he gets back to the academy in Yavna. And he sent the message to these two sages, included amongst them is, is our the author of our Mishnah. He makes a, a note, okay, I want to promote you. I want to give you a higher stature. And they, of course, refuse. Because they thought 
that, you know, being elevated, we know we should try to resist promotions. Like Moses is promoted to be the leader of Jewish people and he resists. He doesn't want to – it's a certain trait of a real leader is that they don't want to be a real leader. They want to recuse themselves. They, they, they don't want to be – they want to – they, they, they don't want to be nominated to be the great leader. And therefore, they initially demur when Rogamliel offers them a promotion. So he sends them back another message. He says, do you think I'm giving you power? I'm making you work. I'm making you a servant, a public servant. And he quotes a verse that if you're a true leader, you're a public servant. And indeed, finally, they relented and they were promoted. That's another story we find in the Talmud about author of our Mishnah, Rabbi Elazar Chisma, that he was someone who was so brilliant and gifted, yet so destitute, and eventually he was promoted by Rabbi and that uh, you assume would solve some of his financial problems. And he's the author of our Mishnah, he tells us a very cryptic teaching about four different things. Kinim, Pischenida, those two things are the essential laws. Astronomy and mathematics are the accoutrements, are the hors d'oeuvres, are the desserts of wisdom. Now, there's a lot of different commentaries exactly to try to understand what exactly he's even saying. What is the the basic message? Sometimes there's the basic message, and then there's the sophisticated message. Here, it's a little bit hard to understand exactly what he's even saying. But the consensus, if shall we say, is that all these four things that he delineates are all very complicated laws. For example, the first thing he starts off with is the laws of bird sacrifices. And when the Talmud talks about that, it's very complicated. It talks about commingling regular and sacrificial birds, and it's very complicated to try to figure out exactly how to navigate those those questions. And then you have the Pischenida. Uh, Nida refers to the laws of of the woman who's menstruating and the various implications uh, of that status. And part of the ca- calculations are if a woman has a regular interval in her period, regular cycle, that that creates certain laws. Uh, when her cycle is on a regular schedule, then because we can anticipate, because she can anticipate the fact that she's going to get uh, her cycle at a given low time in in the month, that kickstarts certain loss. But if she diverges from her cycle, it's very complicated to to, to manage that and to determine when she would go back to her cycle. It's complicated loss again. The commonality between these four things is that they're all very complicated. And then it talks about astronomy. To calculate the lunar month, the exact length of a lunar month, sometimes it's a little bit longer, sometimes it's a little shorter, but we know basically down to the millisecond how long it is, more, give or, give or take a few milliseconds, and to try to balance that with a solar year. So the solar year is 365 Days and five hours and 55 minutes and change. And the lunar month is 29 days, 12 hours, 44 minutes and three seconds and change, a little bit more than three seconds. And to try to fuse those two, synchronize those two over a 247-year cycle, again, it's literally astronomical, the calculations that are needed to do that. And then we talk about Gematrios. Gematrios, again, very advanced kind of brain to try to calculate 
a sentence and how you know how many letters are in the sentence, what is the particular letters they are, what are the numbers associated with that letters, and it gives you a number, you know, 1,043, not a very useful thing, and you have to figure out, okay, what's the message? What other phrase could have that same arrangement of letters or different letters but that result in the same number? That's a very interesting kind of intellect, and it's very complicated. So again, these are four kinds of complicated studies. And he's rating them. He says the first two, these are essential, and the other two are what's called parparos, which could either mean something that is an accompaniment or something which is like an appetizer. It's not clear exactly what it means. And and the, the commentaries offer different explanations, either that this is something that leads you, it's like an appetizer, it opens up your appetite, it whets your appetite for the real meal. You don't want to have a meal just of appetizers. My kids would love it. If they, you know, just 31 frankens and blankets, as we call them. Perfect, happy, full, as long as there's plenty of ketchup there. But we know that an appetizer is there. It's a small little food that's supposed to bring about the desire for the main meal, for the main entree. So some of the commentaries, they explain that this word paparos means it's an appetizer. It's like an hors d'oeuvre. Others say that no, it's like an accompaniment, which means that just like you have bread, you want to put some butter on the bread. The butter is there to kind of accompany the bread. It's not its own food. It's not its own food category. It's there to, to go together to accompany the other thing. Alternatively, it could be a dessert. So what well, the point is, is that there's the main meal and then there's things that are associated with it. Either the ones that come before it, come with it, come after it, but they're not part of the es- essential meal. And what he's telling us is that the essential meal are the complicated laws that directly relate to mitzvahs that we could do. And the other things which are nice and are necessary, but they themselves are not the essence of wisdom, they go together with wisdom, either because they make you desire real wisdom, or because they go together, they accompany real wisdom, or because it's a nice conclusion to wisdom, but it's not wisdom itself. So that's the general idea. Now, it's interesting that we see here, he's describing elements of Torah law that are very complicated and require a great deal of of general knowledge as well, not just Torah knowledge. You know, because someone could be a great Torah scholar, but then you have the balancing of the month and you're getting into astronomy. So yes, it's Torah astronomy, but it's astronomy that is used for Torah and guided by Torah, but it is, so to speak, you're, you're dipping into a different discipline. And you're dipping into anatomy when you're dealing and, and the, 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 the routine of the, uh, of the monthly cycle when you're dealing with the, with the Nida stuff. And then you deal with the bird sacrifices and there's other, uh, other disciplines and the, the, the calculations, the mathematics of the gematrios. And what one of the commentators here says, you know, he was someone that the Talmud tells us about him, that he was able to calculate how many drops of water were in the ocean? He was obviously someone who was grounded not only in Torah study, but in general study as well. And the way the commentaries, the way they lay it out is they, they say is that, you know, if you had someone who knew nothing about general knowledge and he's coming to opine about general knowledge, 
He's talking about math. He's talking about astronomy. He's talking about anatomy. He's talking about biology. He's talking about uh, uh, the study of, of birds, zoology maybe, birdology. Right? Someone like that who's just – who he's just running his mouth. He doesn't know anything about it. And there we see that this great sage who is well-grounded in these in, in, in these fields and these disciplines, it's appropriate for him to share an insight related to uh, to that knowledge. I want to point out something else. You know, again, we always try to study the personality as depicted by the Talmud to try to understand a little bit of who he was and where he fits in history and uh, and what role he plays in history and who are his colleagues, etc. But I find it interesting that we do find the story about him being a sage, so to speak, or being a student and not knowing how to do certain prayers, going back to the academy and studying and becoming eventually a great scholar. And he's someone who strengthened himself, right? He's called Reza Chisma. He strengthened himself. What do we, what do we maybe surmise about his background? Is it possible that he was someone who was always drawn to astronomy and mathematics and only later on in life pivoted to Torah? Maybe what he's telling us is, is that these things that I studied exclusively as a, as a youth, these things are only there to accompany Torah. They're there to maybe facilitate Torah. But to make it, to give it its own platform, that's where it gets dangerous. That's where I messed up. And maybe that's kind of, he's sharing his own experience that he started off as someone who was immersed in secular knowledge, or not secular knowledge, but in, 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 in complicated, uh, scientific knowledge, but divorced from Torah. And he's telling us, it doesn't work. It, 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 it does enhance Torah. It does maybe lead to Torah. It does accompany Torah. It's a nice conclusion. It's a nice dessert. It goes well together, but you try to do it on its own, and then that's where you get into trouble. And, you know, one of the commentaries says the idea that, you know, you have Torah. Torah is compared to bread for the soul. And then you have all this other stuff that go with bread, you know. Like we like in Israel, they like hummus. You take hummus, you take bread, you put in hummus or a little bit of butter or something to dip it into. But it's kind of the oddballs who have just the condiments. When I was in, in school, there was a, a kid in my class who used to take those little ketchup packets, open the edge and just, just eat it straight from the, uh, from the packet. It's a little bit bizarre. And what he's telling us over here is that that's bizarre. If you just have the butter, just eat the butter by the spoonful. I don't know anyone who does that, but I'm sure there's someone who does that. <laughs> I'm sure there is someone who does that, but that's, 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 that's not, that's, that's unusual, right? It's there to enhance, to go together with the bread. The Torah is the bread. The Torah is what's, what is the real wisdom and everything else. And even things that are tangentially associated with Torah, but to kind of take those things and make them their own platform, take the astronomy and study astronomy for astronomy's sake, not together with Torah, that's where you go wrong. So I think it's a very fascinating example of the stories that were told about the sage and the Talmud. Again, this is this very, very little. There's a dearth. There's a paucity of teachings about this sage in the Talmud, and he gives us a very, a very cryptic teaching in, in Perkevos, but maybe that's the insight. The, the, the underlying insight clearly is that Torah is the bread, Torah is the essence, and there are things that accompany it. But maybe 
it's not just random that he was one who, who, who was selected to convey this teaching. He himself was someone who lived through this. He was someone who was very well versed in both Torah and secular knowledge and secular uh, pursuits. He did know how to count the amount of – or to estimate the amount of drops in the water that we don't see any Torah application for. And he is someone who has his feet in both camps, in both pursuits of wisdom of the Torah variety and of the non-Torah variety. And he tells us they're both great, but there is a hierarchy. And they have to be married together, the Torah being the essence, and this being the accompaniment. Again, each one of the each one of the commentaries has their own way of presenting it. Either it comes before, it maybe could Wet your appetite for the real thing. It could accompany the real thing. It could come after together. It, it could, it could summate a real thing. But the real thing is the Torah. The real essence of what provides life and nourishment for our souls, the Torah. Everything else that is the dessert, that is the hors d'oeuvres, that is the accompaniment. That's not the real thing. And if you have just that, that's where you get into the oddball territory of scooping butter by the, uh, by the spoonfuls into your mouth. Okay, so we have concluded chapter three of Perkyavos, uh, three of six, we're done. And next time, please God, we will start chapter four of Perkyavos. I am deeply looking forward. My email address is rabbiwilbergmail.com. I do respond to every email. Sometimes it takes a while for me to respond to them, but uh, do send me an email. I'd appreciate it. Any comments, any questions, any uh, feedback you may have, I look forward to having that and I deeply appreciate all of y'all.